Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. One of the most useful things about music is that it can be used to tell the world who you are. We've all done it. Music is a symbol of our individuality and belief in personal freedom. It proclaims our identity to the world. And once you start doing that, you inevitably find that there are people just like you. Once you're drawn together by a love of a common sort of music, you find that you have other shared interests. You start hanging out, maybe at a specific place. Maybe you begin to talk about other things like politics and social issues and fashion and religion. More people join in, some in the same physical space, others franchising your ideas because they've heard about it somewhere. It's comforting, this little club, this tribe. It sets you apart. Maybe others want to join in, looking to fit in with something they admire and desire. And that makes you feel kind of cool, right? And if the circumstances are just right, you and your new friends, the ones you see and the ones you've never met, find themselves part of a musical subculture. This sort of thing has been happening for decades. We'll visit a few of the more interesting, long-lasting, and intense musical subcultures in rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. There's an appropriate song for a show about musical tribes. That's Echo Smith with Cool Kids. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and for the remainder of this hour, we're going to look at some of the musical subcultures that have drifted through the world of alt-rock. And we're going to begin further in the past than you might guess. Let's talk about Teddy Boys. They were a thing in Britain back in the 1950s, and you can draw a straight line between them and the British punks of the 1970s. Let's start at the beginning. Ted's first started showing up in England in the middle 1950s in response to this new thing from America called rock and roll. These young men, teenagers mostly, adopted the style of Edwardian England of some 40 or 50 years earlier. Tapered trousers, long jackets, waistcoats, sometimes with collars trimmed in velvet, narrow ties with loose collared white shirts, shoes known as brothel creepers, and hair that was styled into something that became known as a duck's arse. The style seemed to have come from the east end and north part of London before spreading across the country. These Edwardian types were named Teddy Boys by the British newspapers, Ted being short for Edward, of course. And this could very well be the first instance in Britain of a youth movement that said, hey, we're teenagers, we're different. And this was new because the concept of a teenager, as we know it today, didn't really exist before World War II. You were a child. And then you were adult. There was nothing in between. Teddy boys begged to differ. Ted's loved rock and roll. Elvis, Bill Haley and the Comets, Eddie Cochran. But listening to jazz was also acceptable. And Ted's loved to fight. 
Gangs of them roamed neighborhoods looking for someone to pummel. All four members of the Beatles were terrified by the Teds in Liverpool. Now let's skip ahead to the 1970s. Around 1974, there was a Ted revival, especially when it came to fashion. This was in large part a response to the glam rock of the era. Bowie, T-Rex, The Sweet, Gary Glitter, and so on. One of the places where they'd shop was a place on the King's Road in London, run by Malcolm McLaren and clothing designer Vivian Westwood. They sold all kinds of Ted gear, but not for long. Now We'll come back to them, but first, I think we should hear some Ted music. This is a group called the Teen Cats, and the song is Cause I'm a Teddy Boy. Because I'm a Teddy Boy An example of Teddy Boy music from the Teen Cats. Next, I want to talk about suede heads. This is another British subculture that has connections to music. Suede heads grew out of the skinhead movement, which was a working class subculture that sometimes descended into racism and violence. As the name suggests, their hair was worn a little bit longer. Suede style involved suits, overcoats, and sheepskin coats. Shirts required button-down collars, often made by Ben Sherman. They started white, but pastels came in a little bit later. Sharply pressed trousers were a must, and it was preferable to wear solid red or blue socks. Shoes could be brogues or loafers. As for music, suede's like British glam, just like their teddy boy rivals, but they also shared a skinhead interest in soul, reggae, and ska. For example, this is a song that 60s suedeheads would have danced to. One step beyond. Jamaican ska star Prince Buster with One Step Beyond. Big hit with the British subculture known as Suede Heads. And of course, Madness would cover that song during the ska revival of the late 70s and early 80s, but we will get to that. Next, we have mods. Again, this is a British subculture that dates as far back as 1958. Mods were very much about music and fashion and modern things. Four things define mods. Fashion, their motor scooters, their drugs, and their music. Let's start with fashion, which was the most important defining attribute of mod culture. To say that mods were hyper-obsessed with fashion and looking cool is not an understatement. Hair was shortish, but not cropped. Suits were tailor-made, if possible. Narrow lapels were a must. And if they could be made of mohair, all the better. Dress shirts, white was best, with a skinny tie that was either solid or with a bold pattern. No suit? Well, then a sharp blazer would work. Slacks or chinos for pants, slim fit, not skinny, and the cuffs needed to be rolled up. Shoes? Well, loafers, desert boots, or bowling shoes were fine. Outerwear might display a Union Jack or Royal Air Force logo. And here's a thing that a lot of people have forgotten about male mods. Some used makeup, eyeshadow, and eyeliner mainly. Why scooters over motorcycles? Well, they seemed cool in an Italian sort of way, and besides, all their moving parts were covered, leaving less chance for oil or grease to stain their precious clothes. As for drugs, amphetamines. Lots and lots of speed was needed to maintain that all-night dancing. It also helped with their brawls with rockers, another youth subculture where leather jackets and motorcycles and American rock and roll music ruled. And speaking of music, mod culture first embraced jazz, then ska. 
Then British bands trying their hand at R&B, like the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds and the Kinks, and especially the Who. Mod culture died out in the late 1960s thanks to hippie culture. Some mods became skinheads or suedeheads, and others got into a form of music known as Northern Soul. But then came the mod revival of the 1970s. Some post-punk bands adopted mod attitudes and aesthetics, and the biggest of them all was the jam. The Jam, the greatest of the British mod revival bands with Down in the Tube Station at Midnight. Mod culture continues today in certain pockets and in certain forms. Oasis had modern elements to their style, as did Blur for a while. 21st century mods include Jake Bug and Miles Kane of The Last Shadow Puppets. In a moment, we'll talk about punks and the differences between North America and the UK. This is a show about some of the musical subcultures that have had lasting influences on alt-rock. Now we're talking about punks, the originals from the 1970s. Punks came in two distinct flavors, North American and British. And we'll start with the North Americans, specifically New Yorkers. In the early 1970s, New York was in horrible shape. Crime, ghettos, racial tensions, drugs, sleaze, corruption on all levels, and all kinds of urban decay. It was against that backdrop that some artsy weirdos started hanging out in a part of town where no one else wanted to go. There were a couple of clubs that catered to their type, including CBGB. This was a safe place for their arty, experimental, and often non-commercial music. They found other weirdos, painters, poets, writers, fashion designers, who appreciated what they were doing. And because they were in a spot where few ventured, their little scene was left to develop on its own. New York punk was, beyond all else, an art statement. It was anti-materialistic. The attitude was nihilistic, you know, a sort of the world is coming to an end, so we may as well have a good time thing. And the fashion it spawned was anti-fashion. Short hairstyles were a rebuke against hippies and long-haired rock stars, and most of the clothes were secondhand. Sometimes safety pins were used to hold clothes together, which was as much of a fashion statement as it was practical, because sometimes the pieces were so old they were literally falling apart, and the only thing that kept them on their bodies were safety pins. Here's an example of what we're talking about. Richard Hell was the frontman for a band called The Voidoids. His clothing was always falling apart, and the only thing that kept it together were a bunch of safety pins. Richard Hell and the Voidoids, a fixture on the New York punk scene in the middle 1970s. In England, though, punk had a different look and feel. While punk was more of an art statement in New York, it was fueled by politics and the class system in the UK. The UK economy was in shambles. The government had run out of money. There were strikes everywhere. Even gravediggers were on strike. There were rolling electrical blackouts. And then there was the class system. Opportunity and advancement was linked to birth, not ability. Young people were crushed by the recession. They couldn't find work. Unemployment soared. Hopelessness set in. Millions had resigned themselves to a life of living on the dole. There had to be something better than this. By the end of 1975, word had drifted across the Atlantic that something was happening in New York. Some kids picked up on this, but they kept mostly to themselves, and they were pretty much ignored by everyone else. 
We're talking about groups of young people who could be counted by the dozens. That's it. And the fashion they adopted was much more extreme than what was happening in New York. One of the main goals was to shock bondage wear, body piercings, razor blades, bicycle chains, big boots, swastika armbands, white t-shirts with slogans like destroy written on them. And if those shirts were covered in real blood, all the better. Haircuts included mohawks, buzz cuts, no cuts. They were all fine. British punk went way beyond just music. It involved kicking against the upper classes in the monarchy. It was about shocking the older generations. It was about challenging all manner of established British institutions. It was about destroying the status quo. In short, it gave a sense of power to the powerless. The effect of punk was so intense that we still see and feel elements of that scene from the 70s in today's punk. At the heart of the fashion end of things was that shop on the King's Road, number 430. It was called Sex. By 1975, Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood had stopped selling clothes to teddy boys and were now catering to punk kids. It was in this shop that Malcolm McLaren came up with the idea of forming a band that would be a living, breathing advertisement for his store and Vivian's clothing. The group was named after the store, Sex, and the word Pistols, had a dangerous ring to it. And so it came to pass that four customers became the Sex Pistols, including a kid with a menacing stare and green teeth that everybody called Johnny Rotten. The Sex Pistols and Pretty Vacant, that band would not have existed if it weren't for that store selling clothes to this new British tribe called punks. Let's take a look at another subculture that was born in a club. CBGB in New York was ground zero for a lot of punk. London's Blitz Club was a hangout for some fashion-forward young people in 1979 and 1980. Most of them went to art schools, and this is critical. British art schools were places for people who couldn't make it into university or were otherwise uninterested in any formal post-secondary education. Art school allowed non-academic types to pursue their artsy interests, and it was only natural for many of these non-conformist students to end up being involved with music in some way. The Blitz Club, actually it's, it's wine bar, provided sanctuary for some of these kids. The Blitz kids, as they were called, had grown bored with the angry nihilism of punk and wanted something more fun and glamorous. Roxy Music, for example, with their white dinner jackets and sometimes outrageous costumes, like Bowie and his ever-changing sense of style. And makeup, androgyny, gender-bending, fantastic for both boys and girls. David Bowie was the most appreciative of what the Blitz kids were trying to do. If you look at the video for this 1980 hit, Ashes to Ashes, Four Blitz kids appear with him in the clip. David Bowie with Ashes to Ashes, the video of which featured four members of the gang known as the Blitz Kids. Steve Strange, one of the people in that video, would later front a band called Visage, which did okay. And then there was the cloakroom attendant at the Blitz Club, some kid named George O'Dowd. He later became famous as Boy George. 
There was an outgrowth of the Blitzkids, too. It was called the New Romantic Movement. And it starts with fashion. Flamboyant, eccentric, sometimes campy, and often pretentious. The goal became, can I attract more attention with the way I look than anyone else? Like the Blitz kids before them, new romanticists were done with punk. They longed for the days of British glam rock in the early 1970s, when it was okay to dress up. Girls could dress as boys and vice versa, or either sex could kind of stop in the middle. Some favored frilly shirts and jackets that reminded people of gentry dress of the 19th century. Others went for the cabaret look of Berlin in the 1930s. The pirate look was in for a while. Anything that was striking and unusual was fair game. Makeup? What you got? And hair? Well, any head was a blank canvas for anything and everything, regardless of shape, color, and cut. Failing that, a really sharp, stylish, well-tailored suit would do just fine. The British music press loved it. Not only did the band make good copy, but they photographed fabulously well. As for music, new romantics really like synthesizers. They fancied themselves as futurists, and at the time, synths were the sound of the future. Besides, they could be very easy to play. Just experiment with twisting some knobs and pushing a few keys, and you could get sounds that had never been heard by human ears. It was very punk in that way. Virtuosity and ability didn't count as much as having the guts to do and say something. Many, many bands were lumped into the new romantic movement, whether they liked it or not. There was Gary Newman, Soft Cell, Ultravox, Spando Ballet, Adam and the Ants. But the biggest of them all had to be Duran Duran. Duran Duran, the biggest of the bands to emerge out of the subculture known as the New Romantics. Time for a couple of more tribes. When we come back, we will acknowledge the Goths. This is a program looking at some of the more prominent tribes and subcultures of alt-rock. And if we had to name one subculture as the biggest of all the ones associated with alt-rock, we would have to go with Goth. They rank right up there with metal culture as one of the most wide-reaching of all musical tribes. Now, we must be very specific here. Goth culture includes much more than just music, so we're going to narrow things down to just gothic rock, which, depending on your point of view, may have been the predecessor to general goth culture, but let's not get bogged down in that argument. Gothic rock was one of the many genres that popped up in the era immediately after the punk rock of the 1970s. It didn't sound like punk, but you could tell from listening that something like punk must have happened to get us this far. Just as New York punk had CBGBs and the New Romantics had the Blitz Club, early goths had a place in London called the Batcave. But by the time that place got going, gothic rock was very, very much already a thing. When it comes to fashion, black will just have to do until something darker comes along. Unless you're a cyber goth, in which case brighter colors are welcome. Big hair, dark makeup, black lipstick, black nail polish. Edwardian fashion, the real thing, not what we saw with the Teddy Boys, is very popular. Corsets, big dresses, baggy pants, studs and bangles are welcome. And as for footwear, well, boots are the big thing. There's a lot of religious and supernatural symbolism and imagery in the music. Other words used to describe the subject matter are gloomy, morbid, somber, even vampiric. But it's not always darkness and death. Goths can be very happy people. Yeah, the music is dark and introspective, often in a minor key, and can feature sharp, brittle guitars and reverb. 
Gothrock has some DNA from 60s psych, but its influences go as far back as the Velvet Underground and even some Leonard Cohen from the 1960s. We also have to give Alice Cooper credit for his death-obsessed shock rock of the early 1970s. And, of course, there are also some elements of Bowie in goth. Goth really started happening in the very late 70s and the early 80s. Bauhaus, The Cure, Sex Gang Children, Alien Sex Fiend, Sisters of Mercy. And for many, the queen of goth remains Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees. Something from the fantastically large world of gothic rock, Susie and the Banshees with Christine from 1980. It's not that big of a jump from goth to emo. Its roots are in the hardcore punk scene of Washington, D.C., but instead of rebelling against authority, emo is much more emotional. Subject matter of songs includes big breakups, not fitting in, and general angst with adolescence and life in general. Early original emo bands included Minor Threat and Rites of Spring. In the first half of the 90s, we had Sunny Day Real Estate and Jawbreaker. And later in the decade, we heard from Taking Back Sunday, Thursday, The Promise Ring, and Saves the Day. Weezer's Pinkerton album was seen as a big influence. It was towards the end of the 90s when emo really began to break through. It became more poppy as well as punky. Lots of hooks and melodies. The first Jimmy Eat World albums were big for the scene, especially their Clarity album. That was followed by Fallout Boy, Panic at the Disco, Paramore, All-American Rejects, and dozens more. Before we hear some music, let's talk about the subculture that many refer to as emo kids. The look includes the trademark swoopy hair, sometimes with one long bang covering one eye. Clothes are dark or a mix of gray and put on lots of layers. And t-shirts, plaids, hoodies, they're all part of the uniform. Pants are usually skinny jeans, sometimes ripped, sometimes not. As for shoes, uh, Vans or Converse are popular. And then we need to talk accessories. Glasses, pins, patches, necklaces, piercings, tattoos. And if you want to use dark eyeliner, that's popular for anybody, both men and women. If you're into Screamo, which is Emo's louder cousin, you can go with more shine or color in your hair. And back to the music. Just make sure you're in touch with your emotions. That's what counted. Like this song from My Chemical Romance. A fine example of emo pop, My Chemical Romance, and Welcome to the Black Parade. I want to touch on one more alt-rock subculture, and that's ska punk. First wave ska were the Jamaican originals from the 50s and 60s. Second wave ska was what we heard from two-tone bands like The Specials, and British groups like Madness and the English Beat in the late 70s and early 80s. Third wave ska is rooted in the U.S. starting in the 1990s. It takes the original beats and rhythms of first and second wave ska and adds them some angsty punk rock. Dress includes virtually any kind of haircut, from mohawks to buzz cuts. Hats are good. Trilobies or fedoras are best. It's kind of corny, but, you know, corny is a big part of the look. Shirts can be buttoned down if you're going corny, but the standard issue uniform comes with band t-shirts that you might want to tuck inside your pants. Unlike the black and white motif of two-tone ska, colors are welcome. Bright red suspenders work to hold up skinny jeans or slim-fit jeans. And just make sure you roll up the cuffs so everybody can see your shoes, which should be Doc Martens, Chuck Taylors, or Vans. Now you're ready to go see a band like Goldfinger. Cause I still feel the same. Cause I still feel the same. 
Some music from the ska punk scene. Goldfinger from 1996 with Here in Your Bedroom. And there is a look at just some of the tribes and cultures of alt-rock. There are others, grunge fans, industrial kids, metal types, virtually something for everyone. And there will be more types of these self-organizing communities around a common love of a certain type of music, as long as there is music. If you want more music information on a daily basis, check out my website at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It comes with a free daily newsletter, too, which you will get in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern. I'm also all over Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Google+, if you'd prefer to connect that way. Thanks to Matt the Intern for the research help on the show. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first? And explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Popstar. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario, that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world, and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay, how are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video; now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean. We're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing, you know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker, so it's not 
conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter. Uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music, uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what, what drew them in to get into this world of, uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And, and a lot of times to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what, what went into to make that product. And, and that, that piece of art affair is the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much, we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind (laughs) of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things. Uh, And, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up I came up in the 80s era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos. Right. The MTV much music era watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and and Michael Jackson and uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at architects pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Cotex with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.